As we dive into Jonah chapter 3, we're actually going to start in a totally different place. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read a section of scripture for you. But we're going to start this morning in our examination of Jonah 3 in the most unlikely of, of territories, and that is Acts chapter 10. Like I said, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read quite a section of scripture. I'm going to lay out a story because I think it's relevant to the book of Jonah. We'll tie it all together. Acts chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, we read that there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius. He was a centurion, a devout man, one who feared God with all of his household. Cornelius gave alms generously. He prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, Cornelius saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. (laughs) And when he had observed him, he was afraid, and he replied, What is it, Lord? So the angel said to him, Your prayers and alms have come up as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for Peter. His lodging was Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Well, the angel departed, so Cornelius called two of his servants, a devout soldier, and when he explained all these things to him, to them, he sent them to Joppa. Well, the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray. It's about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry. He wanted something to eat. But while they made ready the meal, Peter fell into a trance. And he saw heaven open. And an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him. In this sheet were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth. Wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to Peter saying, rise Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so Lord. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. A voice spoke to Peter a second time saying, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, while Peter pondered within himself what this vision meant, behold, the two men who had been sent from Cornelius stood before the gate, and they called and they asked whether Peter was lodging there. Now, while Peter was thinking about this vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them. Doubt nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius. And he said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God, good reputation among the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. So Peter invited them in and lodged with him. And the next day, Peter went away with them. Though I'm not going to provide this morning a full expose of Acts chapter 10. To understand this story, there are kind of three essential things you you should understand. One, very quickly, God's plan from the beginning had always been to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus. Both Jew and Gentile had always been the plan. That's why he called out a holy people, set aside to be a light into the world. Secondly, the mechanism by which Jesus would accomplish the Great Commission. So God's plan had always been to reach Jew and Gentile like the whole world, but he would use Jews to do this, which presented a problem because the Jews held deep-seated prejudices towards those that weren't Hebrew, those of the Gentile world. The third thing you should keep in mind to understand what's happening here is that knowing what it would take for Peter, who is a good Jewish man, to be obedient to cross this racial barrier to take the gospel to Cornelius, Jesus has spent the last several years preparing Peter for the task in front of him. The vision that Peter has just received was kind of the the final step in this preparation. While many teach that the vision was designed to illustrate to Peter that the church would be made up of both Jews and Gentiles, clean and unclean, I don't think the vision actually has anything to do with Gentiles, nor do I really think it has anything to do with the church either. Instead, the vision itself, I'm convinced, had everything to do with Peter. As we've seen with Jonah, God's commands always do what first? 
They challenged the heart of the messenger. Consider, why would Peter, when being presented with this sheet full of animals, refuse to obey God's direct command to kill and to eat on three separate occasions? And the answer, as a good religious Jew, eating these animals on this sheet, it was specifically forbidden by the dietary restrictions laid out in the law, Leviticus chapter 11. He sees this an, these animals and God says, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. I'm a good kosher Jew. I've never eaten any of those things three times. God says, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, the law says that I can't do it. So you have to consider, right? Why would God ask Peter to do something that seemed on the surface totally wrong, right? Once again, I could take the entire study to address that question. But the short end of the answer is that God, through this vision, was challenging a misunderstanding that existed in a predominantly Jewish church as it pertained to the full nature of salvation. Though everyone in this first church agreed that salvation, what we'd call justification before God, only came through Jesus' atoning work on the cross. Sad to say, many in the first church saw God's continued favor, what we would call sanctification, as still being based in your obedience to the law. Yes, we're saved by Jesus and what he did on the cross, but we're perfected by our obedience. In essence, in the first century church, they had bought into the idea that salvation was a combination of one's faith in God plus your obedience to God, which explains why one of the other problems in the first century church was that in order to be a Christian, there were many teachers saying that you also had to become Jewish, a practicing Jew. Now, while Peter undoubtedly understood that his salvation was based in Jesus, his faith in Jesus' work on the cross, the text is clear, though, right? That he still held to a belief that his favor with God, yes, he was saved, but his favor with God was still intertwined with his obedience to the law. Kill and eat. What's Peter's response? No. Why? I had never eaten anything common or unclean. He holds up his obedience, not Christ's work on the cross. With this in mind, God's point in commanding Peter to kill and eat was not designed to change his diet, but instead was designed to challenge his perspective. <laughs> Look at God's reply to Peter's justification. I've never eaten anything unclean or common. Well, a voice spoke to Peter a second time, saying what God has cleansed, how dare you call common? See that? Now, in context, what had God cleansed? Had God somehow cleansed the animals on the sheet, the animals, the law, had declared to be unclean? I don't think so at all. It seems to me that what God had cleansed was in actuality Peter. Peter is the one who had been cleansed. Think about how those words would have reverberated in his heart. Peter, come on, man. Your obedience to the law. You being a good kosher Jew. Did that ever have a bearing in making you perfect? Perfecting you, cleansing you, making you right before God? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, you are all those things for one reason. I did a work in you. I died for your sins. I atoned for your sins. I've set you free. Like at this point, Peter, come on. What you eat, what you drink, it doesn't matter as it pertains to your right standing before me. The truth is that this vision was God's way of telling Peter that his obedience to the law, eating things clean or unclean, had past tense, still had present tense, and would never have future tense any bearing when it came to his favor with God. Justification, how we're saved, and sanctification, how we've become better people, are, are a result of Jesus' work. Jesus' work for Peter and for us, and never a work we do for Jesus. Now, to prep him for what's coming, Peter needed to know, being Jewish, obeying Jewish laws, holding to Jewish customs had no impact on his favor with God. God's favor had been given to him, not earned by him. It was a work of faith based how? In God's grace and God's grace alone. 
Like this was an important lesson for Peter, especially in the context of what's about to happen in his life. As he's pondering this vision, Peter now knows that if justification and sanctification are both a work of God independent of an individual's adherence to law, then at that point, something crazy's now happened. The doors of salvation swing wide open for all of humanity that would just believe in faith and receive by grace. Being an obedient Jew was no longer a prerequisite to receive God's favor, to be a part of his chosen people. It was a work of grace and grace alone. Now, before we connect this story to Jonah, I should also point out that it's not an accident, that this was done, okay, three times. It took three times for the vision to happen, the commands to take place, three times for Peter to to really start to get what's being communicated. I wonder what three times, how that would have impacted old Peter. Like what he might have brought to recall. (laughs) I think it's definitely the incredible grace that Jesus has already demonstrated to him. Don't, don't forget Peter. Jesus gets arrested, right? He's going through a series of trials. Peter's like, I'll never deny you. And Jesus is like, oh boy, <laughs> you will three times, right? And what happens? Three times before the rooster crows, Peter denies him three times. And he runs and he weeps. He's let down the Lord. He met eye contact when the, rest, when the rooster crowed. And then what did it take for Peter to be restored? Jesus had to come. He's a resurrected Jesus. They're out fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They see someone cooking breakfast on the shore. They recognize it's Jesus. I love that. Resurrected body, still interested in eating. It's a good thing. You don't have to get fat. You're glorified. They see. Peter sees that it's Jesus. What does he do? He dives in. Won't even wait for the boat. Swims to shore. He has an interesting interaction Because Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? It took three times in denial. Three times, though, for restoration. Three times he receives a vision about grace. It's as though God is trying to tell Peter, Peter, do you really want to base my favor with you on your performance or my grace? Ultimately, that's the question all humanity has to ask ourselves. Do you want to base your relationship with God on your performance? Or would you rather base it on Jesus's and his grace? You see, Peter's story in Acts 10 illustrates a a truth of pivotal importance. When you come to the realization that your right standing before God is based only on his grace. It's not on your merit. Showing moral prejudice towards another, at that point, it becomes a baseless proposition. Friend, the only segregation that exists on Mount Calvary is a man on the cross and the rest of us on our knees. It's the only division of humanity. Jesus and us sinners. Imagine Peter's reaction. He sees this vision three times, right? There's a knock on the door. And what does he discover? God has sent three men. And who are they? Two Gentile servants and a military man. To make matters worse, God has commanded that he go with them, but now he knows the destination is the home of a Roman centurion. Like, don't overlook the significance of the detail that Peter, how does he react? He invites them in and he lodges with them before then the next day going. Like in the original language, lodge them, meant that Peter entertained them as, as, as honored guests. Most amazingly, this very pajama party and Peter's obedience would have been inconceivable if not for the vision that Peter has just been given and the one he's just accepted. The magnitude of God's grace in Peter's life now transcended anything that would have ever prohibited fellowship. For the sake of time, let me just tell you what happens next. 
Peter obeys God's commands. He goes to the house of Cornelius. He preaches the gospel. This man, along with his entire family, place their faith in Jesus, are filled with the Holy Spirit, then are baptized. And it's through this singular event that the gospel jumps from Jewish communities to the Gentile world. Peter's obedience, his response to grace in Acts 10, was a, was a pivotal instrument in determining the direction of Christianity. If Peter had not obeyed in Acts 10, we wouldn't be here, unless you're Jewish. And do you think, this is where we come full circle, do you think it's an accident, a coincidence, that this ground-shaking, world-changing development began where? In Joppa. The exact same port city in Israel where some 800 years beforehand, God would call another devoutly religious man to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. As we've seen with Jonah and now Peter, the key to their obedience, it was very simple. Would they accept the implications of God's amazing grace? I bring up this story, not to be a filler, to kill time, but because Peter, Peter is the anti-Jonah. I mean, he really is. He's the anti-Jonah. Like, Peter presents a man who received God's grace, allowed it to transform his heart, then he obeyed God's command, submitted to his will, and was used in a mighty way. Now contrast that to Jonah. Jonah resisted God's grace, refused to allow it to affect his heart, disobeyed God's commands, resisted God's will, and what ends up happening? He's swallowed up by a great fish. Christian, the fundamental difference between emulating Peter and being used to change the world or experiencing the plight of Jonah and going down, down, and down is what you do when you're challenged with the nature of God's grace. Now, where we left off our story of Jonah, it's interesting. Jonah has repented of his rebellion. Tragically, though, his repentance fell short of God's intended desire. Unlike Peter, while Jonah understands that the Lord saves, he's appealed to God's salvation to be extended as a response to the promises that he's just made to God in the belly of the fish. Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, how does it end? There's a lot of great components, but how it ends is simple. Jonah declaring, I will sacrifice. I will pay what I have vowed so that the Lord will save. He has it backwards. When you understand God's grace and the fact that he saves based on his grace, it's then in response to that that you will sacrifice and you will pay and you will vow. You don't have to do those things to bring it about. Yes, Jonah is repenting. But his repentance is sadly leading him back to religion and not grace. God's favor based on his merit, his goodness, not God's. Jonah. Jonah misses the entire lesson that Peter readily accepted. As we're about to see, because he's yet to learn this lesson, the lesson of grace, the lesson God's been trying to get through to him, the last two chapters of Jonah's story present the identical plot line of the first two chapters. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 1, it starts the exact same way that Jonah 1.1 does. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I will tell you. Though chapter 2 closes with Jonah being vomited onto a beach by this fish, the text does leave out a few details. One, we have no idea where Jonah finds himself. We don't know the location of this particular beach. Jewish historian Josephus claims that Jonah was upchucked somewhere in the region of the Black Sea, meaning he would then be about 400 miles from Nineveh, 
versus the 900 miles he would have been if he had been in Joppa. Others actually think that he was regurgitated there on the shore of Joppa where he left, like maybe even the same dock, proving a point. Honestly, we have no idea. The text doesn't tell us. Secondly, we also don't know how much time has transpired between the close of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Now, it's most likely that verse 1 occurs the very moment Jonah the prophet's head hits the sand, leaving no gap between the chapter breaks. But it is at least theoretically possible that Jonah could have settled back into his usual routine as a prophet in Israel, thinking this situation was behind him. Either way, one thing we do know, at some point, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And what, it, what does God do? He presents Jonah the identical marching orders of the first. God was calling Jonah to arise, go to Nineveh, and preach a message that he would be given from the Lord. Though Jonah had attempted to run from a divine calling. The calling, calling itself, was inescapable. If you've ever felt called by God and you've run from that calling, it doesn't go away just because you're fleeing. Personally, I see the fact that, that God even gives Jonah a second calling to be nothing shy of just another example of God's amazing grace. I mean... Jonah is the last guy that deserves a second chance, right? I mean, how much more does Jonah have to prove he's stubborn for God to get it, right? One author writes, by paralleling the book's opening remarks, almost word for word, the author skillfully conveys the idea that Jonah is being offered a new beginning. I don't think I have to hammer home the point, but isn't it true that it's awesome that we serve a God of second chances? You know, beyond that, I'm glad he's also a God of thirds and fourths and fifths. I could keep counting for illustrative purposes, but you get the point. That God's love for us is never ending. That his patience with us is inexhaustible. Jonah, a second chance. And while that is a glorious reality in and of itself, there is a caveat that should be pointed out. Jonah's new beginning began the identical place of his previous failure. Yet you might have mucked up your life, messed it all up. You could probably trace it back to one bad decision. God will give you a second chance, but know that that second chance is going to take you back to where you started, where you failed. If Jonah thought that his fresh start would circumvent his past mistakes, he found himself very quickly disappointed because he had failed the class. There was no mistaking. He would have to re-enroll in the same grade, unless he's in Gwinnett County, and they like to push him on. It's a side joke, sorry. I got more amens from the teachers of Gwinnett County. It's been correctly said of repentance. God always takes you back to the place that you said no. Isn't that true? As such, Jonah, right? While learning several lessons of importance through his experiences on the tempest, as well as in the belly of the fish, Jonah had still failed to accept the biggest lesson of all. What God was trying to teach him of grace. Friend, <laughs> let me tell you something. At first, it might, it might come across a little off, let me explain. Here's the truth you need to grasp. God is way more stubborn than you are. I'm pretty stubborn, pretty hard-headed. God, exponentially so. You know, as any loving parent quickly learns, something I'm learning, if you don't develop a greater stubbornness than your children, it's going to be nearly impossible to win any significant battles. As a dad, you just realize, son, you're stubborn. I will prove that I'm more stubborn. I have to. It's the only way I can win the battle. 
for you to learn what you need to learn. Friend, you need to know this morning, before we go any further, you can resist God. You're free to do so. But God is free to resist you right back, and he will. You can wrestle with him like Jacob. God will wrestle right back. He's not afraid of a fight with you. And why? Why is there a divine stubbornness with God? Well, A, he knows us. And he knows that we're also stubborn. But two, he loves us. Enough to fight with us, to fight back at us. I love that about God. Verse three, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And he cried out, saying, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. <laughs> so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Like, regardless of what beach Jonah was vomited onto, because of the location of Nineveh, he had a significant journey regardless. So keep that in mind. Like, it's contrary to what you'll hear a lot of Bible teachers say, and I don't understand how in the world this gets missed. Nineveh is not a port city. Please realize that. You'll hear some people talk about, no, no, he got spit up, he walked right into the city. No, this is like a several-week journey from whatever beach he's at. It's 400 miles to 900 miles. Like, Nineveh is not a port. It doesn't have a beach. Geographically, we know that Nineveh exists today under the Iraqi city of Mosul. It would have taken Jonah several weeks to get to Nineveh. But we also know from archaeological digs that Nineveh was about 60 miles in diameter. Now, since Jonah could probably walk about 20 miles a day, give or take, this detail that we're provided that Nineveh was a three-day journey in extent, meaning from interior wall to interior wall, this demonstrated 60 miles. You can walk probably three days to get across it. This presents for us the idea that it was after the completion of the first day's walk that Jonah begins to cry out as he's what? As he's approaching the city center. So Jonah gets to Nineveh. We don't know how long it takes. He walks through the gates. He walks for a day before he does anything. And then once he's about getting to the interior part, the inner perimeter, he then starts declaring as he's getting to the center of the city. Now, before we get to the essence of Jonah's message, I should reiterate that Nineveh was a massive metropolitan center. Like the first of its kind in the world, only to be later rivaled by Babylon the Great. The very last verse of the book, God provides us an interesting detail. He says that, that in Nineveh were 120,000 young children living there, meaning that the overall population of Nineveh itself would have been potentially about one and a half million. That's a lot of folks in an ancient city. Now imagine the scene, okay? Jonah. Jonah hates the Assyrians. Don't forget that. And he walks into Times Square and he begins crying out, declaring, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In the original language, the Hebrew word translated, and he cried out, is in the active tense, meaning Jonah was repeating this message over and over and over again. One message. Now, the message is simple, right? Eight words in the English, five words in the Hebrew. And if we're to be honest, his message is quite vague on specifics, right? Like, how is Nineveh going to be overthrown? I mean, it is the impregnable capital of the dominant world superpower. Why, why 40 days? On and on and on, right? <laughs> Beyond that, it's likely Jonah is crying out in Hebrew. And why is that important? The Assyrians don't speak Hebrew. They don't. They spoke an ancient dialect of, of, of Aramaic. Like Jonah is coming in, repeating a simple message, vague on details, in a language no one gets. No one understands. Now imagine you're a Ninevite. 
going about your daily activities, when you notice that there's a foreigner, kind of a funky-looking guy, set up in the city square, repeating the same five words over and over and over and over again. You might be able to recognize that it's Hebrew. Maybe, maybe not. You have no idea what he's saying, though. Your initial assumption when you encounter Jonah is that he's one of the crazies, right? You might be looking for the bucket to drop a few coins into. Like, even when someone finally does help you out, word begins to spread what he's saying, like you get the message translated, that only adds more confusion than clarity. Is this man making a threat? Does he know something? We don't. How would he know? Has God actually sent him? Worse yet, maybe an approaching army? Is there any credence to what he's saying? How would this even happen? Like, the questions are bountiful. The answer's not so much. Beyond this, as, I, as I'm imagining this, like, what do you think Jonah's tone was as he's repeating this message over and over and over again? He detests the Ninevites. For the most part, he's there begrudgingly. He doesn't want to be there. Like, there's no doubt that while Jonah is being obedient to preach, what is he hoping? He's hoping everyone doesn't listen to him and they all die. Like, imagine what tone I would have if that was the heart behind my message on Sunday morning. I hate you all. I hope you don't listen to this. I hope you all die and go to hell. You can actually probably imagine it. Those guys are on TV. The last thing, the last thing Jonah wants is repentance, right? Like, I, I actually think Jonah would probably prefer that someone be like, man, can you turn it down? And he gets louder. Can you please turn it down? He gets, someone just rams him through with a sword. I think Jonah, as he's preaching, would prefer someone kill him so at least he can die there in his last moments knowing God's going to destroy them. Like, that's where he is. Like, he is being obedient. He doesn't have the heart of God. Like, I think it's safe to say Jonah's tone, it's not pleading. Like, there's not a compassion in his voice. In all likelihood, Jonah is declaring this, this, this warning with a grin, laughing, hoping. And yet, in spite of all of that, look at what happens next, verse 5. So, the people of Nineveh believed God proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. It's one and a half million people. The word came then to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the kings and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Don't let them eat, don't let them drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. They covered their animals with sackcloth. And let everyone cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent or turn away his fierce anger so that we may not perish? That is a twist that literally no one would have ever expected. You wouldn't have seen it coming, especially under the circumstances like we read in response to Jonah and his message, the people of Nineveh believed God. They didn't believe Jonah. They believed God. Now, for reasons we'll soon discuss, the people of Nineveh become so confident that judgment was actually going to come in 40 days that what's being described is, is something that happens organically. Organically, the people, hearing this message, something strikes them in the heart. They proclaim a fast on their own. Like they get a Facebook campaign going on into a proclaim a fast. All of the citizenry on their own, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth in collective mourning. Like what's happening is so natural, so astounding, that by the time word came to the king, what does he do? He immediately arises from his throne, joins in the national repentance, even makes a proclamation for everyone to cry mightily to God and turn away from their evil and violence. These Ninevites undoubtedly believed that God was communicating an important message through Jonah. And don't overlook 
the magnitude and the radical nature of what's taking place. Historically, what we find recorded in these verses is the first great and maybe greatest spiritual awakening, one day spiritual awakening in all of human history. What happened on Pentecost was amazing, right? Birth of the church, 3,000 souls. Jonah comes in, five words in Hebrew, one and a half million, sucker, right? I mean, like, this is like the biggest thing that's ever happened. Like an entire city of a million plus wicked, vile, brutal Assyrians repent of their sin and collectively appeal for the salvation of the true and living God. (laughs) As we even consider how such a thing could happen, keep in mind, this awakening was ultimately the product of two things. The message and the messenger of the Lord. First, notice the message Jonah delivered fundamentally possessed two components, one very direct and the other one implied. No doubt, the central message was what? The coming judgment of God, right? You can't miss that, plain as day. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It would seem that it was the idea of a coming judgment that struck an immediate chord in the hearts of these Ninevites. Meaning this, though they were an evil and depraved people, they weren't ignorant of that reality. Like these people knew that they were cruel. They knew that they were savage. What's interesting about the reaction The Ninevites never once questioned Jonah's claim that judgment was imminent. Like, they don't argue with him. They don't even want a further explanation. How do you know? They knew. They'd seen themselves. Like, they don't even inquire that Jonah provide a specific reason that God found it necessary to judge them in 40 days. Like, what's suggested is that the Ninevites deep down knew that they were guilty of unspeakable crimes against humanity. They knew that their brutal actions were worthy of a swift judgment. They rightly knew the divine wrath of God would have been just, all things considered. And yet, a coming judgment, while very obvious, that's not all Jonah communicated, was it? Like, like there's something else kind of implied, right? Like, in addition to a day of reckoning... You can't escape the incredible measure of grace implied in the fact that God was giving them a 40-day warning. Like, think about it. Like, if the Ninevites understood that their actions warranted judgment, they also then knew that the very fact that God was willing to afford them 40 days meant that he was intentionally giving them time. And what we would say, how we would define that, is that God was giving them mercy. He was withholding what they deserved. Justice would have been immediate judgment. Time was mercy. But he was also giving them an opportunity to repent, which is grace. A chance to do something they didn't deserve. And writing on this passage, biblical scholar and commentator, Pastor Sandy Adams, He makes this interesting observation. Quote, I'm doing this because he just decided to teach through Jonah. I don't know why. Quote, in Oriental culture, the number 40 had special significance. The number is the product of five, the number of grace, and eight, the number of new beginnings. As such, the number 40 denotes the period of testing that usually precedes an outpouring of God's grace in the form of a revival. The Ninevites heard that in 40 days, God would judge their city. They must have responded, why is God waiting 40 days? He must be giving us time to repent. Perhaps if we repent, God will have mercy and spare us. It's interesting. Friend, if you know deep down this morning that who you are, what you've done, maybe even what you're doing, would rightly demand the judgment of God, a holy God, this is what I want you to take away. 
the very fact that God hasn't struck you down right now, the very fact he hasn't brought down his wrath is evidence of his incredible mercy and his amazing grace. In his mercy, God is affording you time. And by his grace, he's giving you an opportunity to repent, to receive Jesus, to be saved from a punishment you deserve. This was a fact that the Ninevites recognized. And as such, they, they acted accordingly. There's another component to this story you can't deny. And that is the incredible power of the word of God. The word of the Lord. God's perfect timing combined with the way that his word spoke to the human soul. It, it can move anyone, friend, to repentance. Jonah. In the previous chapter, what does he say? Salvation is of the Lord. You know, that's a reality. There's a reality of evangelism we often overlook. And I hope you know this. Evangelism is kind of a dirty word. Ooh, evangelism. You're, you are called to evangelize. But here's something you need to know. Your job is not to save people. It's not. In actuality, you have zero, you have zero power to save anyone. You, you don't wear the name tag Savior. That's not you. That's Jesus. Salvation is of the Lord. The ultimate saving of the sinner and subsequent transformation of a sinner's life, you know whose job that is? God's and his alone. You see, your job as an instrument of Jesus in this world is to expose people. It's to simply expose people to the most powerful spiritual force on earth, God's word. That's why we teach God's word. And then this is what you need to do. Trust that God's word will do what it does. And that should be liberating. Like your job is to just share the word. You can speak honestly of judgment, but couple it with mercy and grace. Knowing this, what results is entirely God's responsibility. There is power in the word of God. Five words in Hebrew, eight in English, and a revival unlike anything that's ever happened on the planet. There's power in the seed. It's also evident, though, there is, like, this revival took place, this awakening as a result of the message, but also the messenger, right? Now, we don't really get that from the text, but the messenger plays a role. In Luke chapter 11, this is what Jesus says. We're told, and while the crowds were gathered thickly together, Jesus began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah, check this out, became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be a sign to this generation. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment of this generation, will condemn it. They repented at the preaching of Jonah, indeed a far greater than Jonah is here. Now, there's no doubt that the Ninevites, how did they repent? Like what brought about repentance? Jesus affirms it. It was the preaching of Jonah. Amazing. It's just these few words. But this phrase that Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites, that's fascinating. Now, I should point out that this one phrase has led most commentators to attribute much of the spiritual awakening here in Nineveh to a unique physical appearance demonstrated in Jonah. Like, some even reason that since the Assyrians worshipped the fish god, Dagon, Jonah being vomited onto shore by a fish, only to then walk into Nineveh, must be the sign that Jonah became what Jesus is referencing. But there's several problems with this theory very quickly. One, Nineveh is not a port city, as mentioned. It was at least 400 miles away, a several weeks journey. 400 miles from a body of water. As such, there was no living human being in Nineveh that would have seen Jonah deposited onto the shore. Two, in an age where communications didn't happen quick, it's unlikely that there was even time available for the sailors or any witnesses on the beach to carry word to Nineveh about Jonah. Three, proponents of this belief reason that Jonah, being in the belly of the fish, would have been bleached from the acid juices. Like Jonah would have been, as he's walking into Nineveh, like wider than Casper the friendly ghost. Like in a sense, the bleaching was the literal sign. You'll hear this. Almost everyone that teaches this will communicate it. 
That that's what Jesus is referring to. He's the son. He's bleached white. Arguing that then his physical appearance contributed to this unlikely repentance. But the problem with this is that the text makes zero mention of Jonah's physical appearance. And two, it's, it's only logical to extrapolate out that the conditions and the effects of being in the belly of a fish, if you conclude that it's not a whale, but something totally unique created on the fifth day of creation, right? Like, yeah, you might get bleached out by the stomach juices of a whale, but he's not in a whale. He's in something else. We don't know what, but like making some equivalency, it's not exactly logical. Beyond all that, I personally don't like any of these theories because they're basically designed to provide a logical explanation for a supernatural occurrence. God's word was preached and it changed the lives of the hearers, the Ninevites. God didn't need to bleach out Jonah's appearance or have him thrown up out of a fish for that to happen. The power's in the word. Not to mention, if all of these things are true, it meant the Ninevites believed in Dagon, a false god, and not the God of Israel, making the whole story kind of weird. So, how did Jonah become a sign? Notice, Jesus connects this idea with the fact that the Son of Man will also be a sign to this generation. Yes, there's no doubt that the sign, Jesus' resurrection, it was a sign, the greatest of all signs. But that can't apply to Jonah. Why? He wasn't resurrected. And the story of being in the belly of the fish was something the Ninevites would have never heard. They would have only come to learn after the fact. Instead, in its most simplistic interpretation, it would seem the real sign to Nineveh that Jonah fulfilled was the very fact, check it out, that God loved these Assyrians enough to send a prophet all the way from Israel to warn them of destruction in 40 days, just like God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to warn us, warn us of judgment, but to tell us of life. Like Jonah's very presence in Nineveh was a sign, not some goofy physical appearance. And I hope you know a powerful reality is communicated. When you, friend, something powerful happens when you make a decision to step out of your comfort zone and do something radical, to share the truth of God's word with a neighbor or a coworker or a family member or a fellow parent on the soccer or football team. Something powerful is communicated when you do this. Whether they accept the word or not, which is not your responsibility, there is one sign that person cannot deny, and this is it. The God of the universe loved that person enough to practically demonstrate that love by sending you to speak his word. We see this in Nineveh. The fact that Jonah was sent by God with a message, that was the sign that they needed in order to know that God really loved them and preferred grace over judgment. We also witness this in Acts 10, when Peter laid aside his moralism to go to the untouchables. The fact Peter entered the home of Cornelius, the fact that he was willing to enter the home of Cornelius, that preached more than his message, friend. That said something to Cornelius that transcended whatever words came out of his mouth. The words reflected the heart. The fact that you would take time to minister to that neighbor that drives you nuts will communicate to that neighbor something your words can't. That God loves them enough to send you. In conclusion, chapter 3. Chapter 3 presents a truth that should encourage all of us, every one of us, to be bold in our mission and brave enough to reach out to even those that we see to be the unreachables. If God's word could change the Assyrians, there is literally no one that the power of that word that the saving nature of his grace can't reach. Do you know that? But you, don't, you don't know my dad, man. You don't know him. He don't listen to anybody. If God could reach the Assyrians, if his word was powerful enough and his grace was, 
was, was there was something about it that could get through. There is no one you know that is beyond the reach of God. Paul says in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Friend, if a spiritual awakening can come to Nineveh, a nation that was vile, brutal, wicked, perverse, it can come to America. And if Jonah, a totally unwilling prophet, could be used by God for such a thing, imagine the impact that you can make if you're willing. Jonah 3.9 leaves us, I think, kind of with a tragedy. Though the Ninevites have repented via the message that God had delivered through the prophet Jonah, the king of Assyria, we leave him tormented. He's tormented with a grand question. Like in spite of their repentance, their national mourning, all the things that they're doing, look at the question that he asks. He says, who can tell? Like who can know if God will turn, if he'll relent, if he'll turn away from his fierce wrath, his anger that we might not perish? Who can know? We'll do all this, but we don't know. The irony of that question is that there was a man in Nineveh who knew. There was a, who can know? And Jonah's like, He knew. He knew. Jonah was aware. And what? He could have told them that God would turn away because of their repentance. That his grace was enough. Jonah. Sadly, instead of fulfilling this divine role, unlike the Apostle Peter who told Cornelius about Jesus, and the salvation of the Lord. What happens here? Well, as we'll see, Jonah. Who can know? Jonah knew. But Jonah will continue to resist grace. Which will rob him of the joy he could have experienced in being in the center of the greatest revival in all of human history. Who could know? Jonah knew. And Peter knew. I want you to make a decision. Do you want to be like Peter or like Jonah? Do you want to receive that grace and go where God might call? Or do you want to resist that grace? <laughs> I saw a tweet from Gandhi. I don't know how Gandhi tweets. But it, the quote was something to the effect that it's impossible to shake a hand when you have a closed fist. It's impossible, friend, for you to be used by Jesus to impact your world if you're not allowing Jesus to impact you first. Peter was willing. Jonah resisted. May that not be us. So, Father, we let that word...